Welcome to episode 478 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, clients, friends, family, or in some cases, pets. Joining me for uh, what's going to be a pretty packed news roundup, Francesca Chessie Lockhart, who leads the Applied Cybersecurity Community Clinic at the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Jane Banbauer, who is now at the University of Florida, College of Journalism and Communications and Law, and chairs the National AI Advisory Committee on Law Enforcement. And Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with Justice and the National Security Council. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the chief provocateur for the program today. Uh, Lots of news. I'm guessing that the big story for technology is that the U.S. has gone back and taken a look at what it did to try to decouple from China and to prevent China from having a really strong AI program using Western technology and has tightened up every aspect of or almost every aspect of export controls. Nate, what did they do? Aren't we calling this de-risking now? Oh, de-risking. I'm sorry. No, we've moved on from the decoupling. Sorry, that, <laughs> okay. that seems to be a loaded term that a lot of people don't like. But I think there are a couple of important changes here. The first is it expands the restrictions, uh, casts a broader net, basically, to include some less powerful microchips in the prohibition. And the second thing it does is it it goes and does something that has also been done by the Netherlands and others, which is to prohibit the sale of equipment that's used to produce advanced semiconductor chips. And there's obviously a, a requirement that there be some kind of U.S. nexus to that equipment, either the equipment has to be produced here or contain American-made components. But more broadly, you know, as we've talked about before, the administration here is trying to thread a pretty difficult needle with this and other efforts as it relates to China. The first is, as you mentioned, to advance our own economic and security interests through de-risking, so to speak, which inevitably results in, in some pain being imposed on China. And it's trying to in intentionally inflict some pain in other contexts. And this is this is certainly one of them where... There's an effort led by the U.S., but that includes a number of our allies to try to change certain Chinese behaviors by putting some pressure on them. And then, you know, I think there's there's these ongoing efforts that are running parallel to this by the administration to calm the relationship a little bit, reduce the risk of retaliation or or worse escalation with the Chinese. And that's where the rub really is here. And I think the administration has said things publicly that they're not trying to harm the Chinese economy. And and while I think there's a certain amount of truth in that, there's some careful wordsmithing going on as well, where I don't think they're necessarily trying to harm the Chinese economy, but they are trying to limit their ability, as they've, they themselves have said, to, to advance their own development of certain advanced technology. Yeah, and to keep them out of successful uh, implementation of those technologies that we think have right. big military applications. Yeah, I think that's just, it's just hogwash to say we're not trying to hurt China. We are trying to hurt China's ability to hurt us with advanced military technology. And I don't think there's anything in the this latest set of regs that is meant to 
trim back the impact on China. If anything, this is designed to really tighten the screws on every aspect of export controls. Yeah. And one other interesting thing to watch here, last time I was on, we talked about the new Huawei phone that's out that that includes what they claim is a purely domestically manufactured, relatively advanced chip. And, you know, while we've learned some information about that, particularly China's limited ability to apparently scale production of those chips, it's not clear if these steps are informed by what the administration has learned about those chips. But it wouldn't surprise me, particularly on the equipment used to produce chips side of things, if this is in part intended to curb their ability to push forward on that effort. I read this as the government went to Silicon Valley and said, what do we need to do to stop the Chinese from exploiting these technologies? And Silicon Valley gave them a very modest set of things that ought to be done and served up a load of BS about exactly how effective that would be. And then when the rules came out, it became obvious that they were having surprisingly little to no effect. And it was embarrassing for the administration. And then the Huawei chip came out and the embarrassment was made concrete. And I would read this as the Chinese having embarrassed the Biden administration into adopting truly effective controls on uh, AI chips. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting strategy. Maybe this was the idea. Maybe they didn't have enough data to do this right the first time around and only after they had tried the the less effective route, did they uh, go back and ta- start talking to people who had a more jaundiced view of the technology? Uh, or maybe they just it took them this long to to do it right, and they put the first rule out in order to claim the territory without actually being able to patrol it. Yeah, I mean, you raise an important point here, and it's something that'll come up in other contexts as well. I think there is there is certainly a component of industry not wanting you know, to inflict too much pain on China, not wanting to- Or on itself, at least, yes. <laughs> to impact markets that it deems important. But I think, you know, at least my view, and I think the view of the administration is, that's a very short-term perspective on this problem, right? It's sort of, you know, protect what we have today, don't worry about tomorrow. And I think what the administration is trying to do here is look ahead. But I think that that's hard to do when you have industry coming in and talking about just how much pain it's going to inflict on them. And there are, among other things, political ramifications domestically for that as well. And so I think that's another area where they're trying to thread a needle. It's really a disaster for the industry because what these newly effective controls mean for China is there's no hope of kind of getting by under existing controls with Western technology. They're going to have to recapitulate the entire supply chain inside China. And that's very painful and very costly. And China is willing to bear the pain and the cost. And so that means that for all these companies that now have demi-semi monopolies or very strong positions, they're going to have a competitor in China who has faces no competition at home, but can turn every market that the West has into a contested market. So it's it's right. bad for our uh, right. chip companies, for sure. I understand why they hate this idea. And, you know, the, the administration in this update has, you know, thrown them a lifeline with this option to convince the administration, basically, 
that there are essentially less drastic means, as yeah. lawyers might call them, to to effectuate this or to achieve the goal they're seeking to to achieve here without expanding it to include some of these less advanced chips to try to keep those markets open. But it kind of you know puts I think the burden on on industry to show that 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 can be done without costing the the administration the objective that they're trying to achieve here. And I think in in a lot of ways that's a better approach to to say you know put the burden on them to demonstrate that we can you know achieve again what we want out of this without harming domestic industry that is admittedly important and is doing a lot of business there currently. They showed a little leg for NVIDIA yeah. in that process, uh, which is the dominant, if not only, supplier of advanced AI chips in the world and who will soon have a competitor in China because of these rules. And they allowed them to make more sales to China, but not the, their most sophisticated stuff. Right. Okay. So speaking of regulations that come out first in draft and don't mean anything, and then later might mean something, uh, Jesse, the Biden administration is working on what must be the third or fourth draft of aspirational AI regulation. Uh, and it's supposed to be this giant executive order on AI. What do we know about it? Yeah, sounds like it could be out as early as the end of this month. So I think everyone's waiting on that. So we know, like you said, this is an elaboration on previous efforts and previous executive orders to use some of the federal government influence in the market to to rein in AI and development and use cases. So as you mentioned, it's likely to be pretty visionary, pretty voluntaristic as an executive order focused on national security and elaborating on different efforts from the past. So one, the AI Bill of Rights that was released this time last year as a, again, visionary and voluntaristic framework for shaping AI development and use cases around privacy protections and civil rights protections. And then two, there was an interesting piece in FedScoop actually over the weekend indicating that the executive order might also tighten up some of the inventory process for AI use cases amongst federal agencies. There, there's an inventory that exists. It's in one spreadsheet, but there are some noticeable gaps both in the number of entries that were expected by federal agencies into that use case inventory, as well as some of the the transparency around the use cases that have been entered. So it could be it could be pretty big. It seems like it will run run the gamut. Yeah, although I frankly, it's it, it's likely impact. If it's just on sales to the federal government, you know, people will read it and they'll treat it with respect or at least outward respect. But that's just a tiny patch on what people think they're going to be able to do with AI. And the government's much more likely to be a tech taker than a tech maker in this field. So I'm skeptical that that tying this to government procurement is an actual significant lever for regulation. It's just a way to to release the latest ethical code from the, the government, in my view. I agree. But, you know, absent any kind of congressional action, I guess that's the, that's the best leverage we've we've got. Yep. Oh, there's always the EU. Uh, Nate, the EU is, yeah. they, they're like hyperactive children. They know they have to produce something. And every time you turn around, they're announcing yet another and completely different or largely different 
regulatory framework for AI. And the only thing that changes is they're going to have it done by the end of the year. Maybe. Right. This leaked plan to regulate AI is not the same as the original proposal. It's not the same as what they adopted this summer. It's like they're just, they're frantically trying to catch up with the field and you know, for a couple of weeks, it looks pretty reasonable until uh, until the field changes. But anyway, why don't you explain what it is that the EU is proposing to do here? Yeah, you know they've they've got the AI Act, which which, as you said, they're they're hoping to resolve the differences between the Council and the Parliament by the end of the year, and sort of have legislation that they can move forward with and enact by early next year, or at least by June when some additional elections will take place. And so they're they're racing against the clock a little bit. But what they're trying to do right now is resolve differences that existed in, in the approaches by Parliament and the Council. And, you know, what this involves is is essentially categorizing AI by risk. And they're now looking at three tiers. I think I think they've kept the old tier of high risk and low risk and stuff. And then they had said, oh, well, we just noticed there are these generative models, the foundation models. We're just going to create a new regime. That's what I think they've done is a new regime for foundation models while they keep the other machine learning AI system in place. It's just going to make it more complicated. But that's at least what I thought they were yeah, doing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in some ways, what I think they're doing is essentially declaring that generative AI models or services are kind of straddling the high risk and right. low risk categories, right? So they're they're not just subject to, essentially what you have are these three categories. The highest risk category is not the high risk category, but instead unacceptable risk, which are are just prohibited essentially in the EU. You have a, a middle category deemed high risk where they're subject to a pretty robust set of regulations. And then you have this low risk category that is simply subject to some relatively minimal transparency requirements. And what they're doing with generative AI is essentially trying to deem it something other than high risk, but not willing to just let it get by with with some basic transparency requirements and instead imposing a broader set of the high risk, though not all of them, but a broader set of the high risk regulatory requirements onto generative AI services. Yeah. And a lot of talk about red teaming and the red teaming gets more and more aggressive as you get more and more worried about the capability of the technology. But to say you need to red team it is to say, I don't know what the problem is, but you go find it. Yeah. This strikes me as a regulatory framework designed to look like regulation, but which is really just a whole bunch of TBDs. Yeah. And you see that with other aspects of European regulation and and particularly enforcement, where there's a little bit more fluidity, shall we say, on how they enforce some of these things. And so, you know, I think that it looks like at the end of the day, some version of this is very likely to pass. We're going to see AI regulation. There are going to be some in number of categories. Generative AI is probably going to be subject to something more than just a basic transparency requirement. And the question is kind of what can they negotiate not only between now and enactment, but also after enactment with the regulators themselves, because there is a little bit of fluidity in the process of who gets deemed to be one thing or another. 
and then what types of requirements they're going to be subject to and and how how strong of a burden they're actually going to place on these companies to demonstrate they've done some of these things. Yeah. The, the one thing they're very clear on is that all of these AI companies are going to pay for the whole program with fees. And I think their strategy about who they're regulating is driven in part by who they think will be able to pay their fees. So they've talked about one of the tiers here, one of the high tiers that requires lots and lots of work is very popular general purpose systems. Read ChatGPT. Right. With 10,000 business users, 45 million end users, those guys are going to pay. And yet you, you kind of say, really, tell me what is the worry that requires regulation of chat GPT? Are we afraid it's going to use the wrong pronouns and we have to we have to punish the people who produce the, the program? I It seems to me we've seen what chat GPT can do. And some of it is kind of, you know, not a very attractive, but none of it is such a serious threat to some value we hold dear to life and limb that, that it requires a brand new regulatory program. I think they brought them in because they knew that they would be making money off those things and they had to have somebody who would pay all the fees. Well, I mean, I think in fairness to them, I, I think there are some legitimate interests here that they have, right? There there are legitimate privacy questions around what, you know, what data these generative AI services can utilize. But they have GDPR. They've already got a regulation that, that would deal with that problem if it's a problem. And I agree that there's also copyright problems in which the copyright owners are trying to collect rent on something they never thought they'd collect rent on before. And if you side with them, then you do think there's some regulation needed. I don't. So I just don't see it. But there are, there are other things too, right? There, there are questions about you know accuracy and misinformation. There's transparency and... And I think, you know, if you are approaching this from the perspective that you want to, you know, inject some of these things into this early and make sure that people are well informed about the services they're using. Yeah, okay. They can, you know, make their own determinations, informed decisions about whether or not the information they're getting back is accurate. I think there is value in this. And I think if you do subscribe to that view, I think starting with the bigger companies where some of those problems are likely to have a broader impact, it does make sense, not just from a financial standpoint, but also from a policy perspective. So one of my one of my hobby horses is in this area is that people keep blaming AI for something that AI does badly. Hallucination is exactly that kind of thing. And then say, you know, we're going to make the AI companies fix it. But that's stupid. We're never going to get chat GPT that doesn't hallucinate. Instead, we have to make sure that the people who are using it are not using it in contexts where hallucination matters. They come up with their own databases that are much less susceptible to hallucination and run the uh, the model against those databases, train them on something that is actually not likely to produce hallucination. But you're better off in those cases saying, let's not fix the, the model because the model's not fixable and it has value in its current form. And then let's figure out where it should be used and how it should be used. And that may or may not be something that the AI company is responsible for. Anyway, okay, I will recede. So are you fully subscribed to the Mark Andreessen view of AI? <laughs> you know, I, I have to say I am kind of halfway there. Jane wanted to talk about this and I will let her talk okay. about it. But it, it was it was kind of fun to see uh, 
Ayn Rand come back after all these years. <laughs> I know. I am a little bit of a believer. Although, you know, on this on this debate you and they were just having, what about the use case, the theory of harm where ChatGBT provides accurate information, but it's about how to create a bioweapon at home or how to, uh, you know. For me, that's the biggest fear is if both the end user and the company has an interest in accuracy, but the accuracy itself suddenly democratizes information and knowledge that we had never had at scale before. That's a fair thing. And again, I kind of think that the effort to fix it inside the AI is warping our view of what can and should be done, because all the evidence is that no matter how many of these pronoun enforcement or don't kill everybody in the world with bioweapons rules are, how many of those rules you make up and how aggressively you train them into the machine, taking them out is child's play. Sometimes you take them out without even knowing it. You're just trying to do some more training and the training overwrites all the kind of red team rules. So I do, I do think that there are problems there. Maybe ChatGPT is a threat from the point of view of chemical weapons and biological weapons. Certainly AI is overall. I'm just not sure that, that I understand how we would deal with that. I'm glad to have the EU worry about that. I'm not sure they really have an answer either, no. to be totally honest. I mean, they have this regulatory framework, right? But it's it's sort of like, you know, it's pretty clear a lot of people have identified categorically what the problems are here. Yeah, the solutions are a little more evasive. I think everybody's kind of struggling to to identify solutions. That's right, Jane. Well, especially because, I mean, I think one of the most natural solutions would be more surveillance of the end users, which, yeah. you, you know, that, that would really tie the EU in a complete pretzel. It would completely... It's worth doing for its own sake. Uh, um, but yes, that is the problem. An AI that says, that doesn't say, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that, but actually calls up Chris Ray and says, by the way, do you know what this guy is doing? Is a much better solution to the problem. Yeah. So, okay. So on the Techno Optimist Manifesto, which I more than halfway subscribe to, I might even go all the way with the caveat that it's a manifesto. It's not, it doesn't clear up every possible question. It doesn't, it's meant to be a, you know, aspirational. Um, and, and maybe bombast for the sake of bombast. <laughs> for the sake, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yes, I, I totally agree. It's a little bit trolling, but it's trolling from people who mostly, you know, say things the way I do. So I'm enjoying it. And in fact, actually, the reaction to the manifesto has itself sort of proven the point. Like I keep seeing these stories where it's like, you know, 10 well-known science fiction writers disagree with the manifesto. And it's like, that's the point is that there's a pervasive culture of having fear and doubt when history suggests that by and large, you know, it's not a monotonic, it's not like technological progress has been monotonically good, but it has been extremely good, at least when combined with markets, it's been the only thing really that brings us out of abject poverty. My own journey to more or less the Andreessen line of thinking was when I learned from Matt Ridley, who's one of the authors in the in the sort of reading list at the end, that the washing machine, the invention of the washing machine may have had more to do with women's rights than any of the sort of idea percolation and the, the sort of legal and policy debates. And it makes so much sense now that I think about it. Like to get progress, you need to get out of a zero-sum game. And that's what the washing machine did. Yeah. It's no longer, the, the, you know, the dishes and the laundry got done and women could go to work, right? Once you had those done, you could, you know, go agitate for the League of Women Voters. 
Exactly, sort of. Yes. And so, yeah, in, or, in order to even have debates about how, you know, what what human flourishing means and how to optimize it for all, it just requires a precondition of wealth, not just being there, but being constantly generated and growing. And and so I'm for it. I get called naive all the time. But I think in a way, it's Andreessen's right that the, the naive standpoint is one that is instinctively, reflexively pessimistic. And I at least had to learn to be an optimist. And so I don't think this is going to change any hearts or minds. But what it is going to do is it's going to, you know, make make some people who are already techno-optimists feel a little less alone. So thank you. I think that's all fair. You know, I used to do some mountaineering when I was younger. I never thrilled to do real heights. But, you know, when you're when you get up on the top of the mountains, you're walking on what amounts to a knife edge with a cliff on both sides. And, and it might be six inches wide. It might be three inches wide or a foot, but it's scary. And you rope up Two people will be joined by ropes. But, you know, when you're the back rope guy and you're watching somebody walk in front of you, you say to yourself, well, if he falls off, what am I supposed to do with this rope? <laughs> and the answer, the answer is, if he falls to the left, you jump to the right. <laughs> and then you try to figure it out after you're hanging there. And uh, this is this is Mark Andreessen jumping right just yeah. because he needs to. And God bless him. I wouldn't do it, but he's got enough money that he can afford to do it. So God bless him. All right, Jesse, uh, there was an article, deleting your data is like the uh, the flavor of the month. California has a delete act. And what we're seeing stories now about are state laws that required registration of data brokers and that have produced surprisingly unimpressive results. Is that surprising? Maybe we should have expected this, but when the state says, if you're a data broker, you must register. You kind of think, well, the data brokers will register. And if they don't, they'll be sorry. But that does not appear to be what's happening. Unfortunately not, no. I think we talked about this issue actually last time I was on yep. on the podcast. I remember correctly because Texas was joining the fray and now Oregon as well. A total of four states that have these laws requiring data brokers to register or risk a fine of up to a certain amount. And, you know, it increases each day that they that they fail to comply so California's Delete Act is essentially doubling down on one, creating a one-stop shop for those brokers that have registered consumers to go in and, and you know, hit a button that their data goes poof, right, from, from those brokers' databases. And then in, you know, somewhat of an acknowledgement of this, this non-registration, non-compliance problem, the Delete Act in California also upped the fines for, for not registering and made it hurt. Perhaps a little bit more, but, you know, the the issue and the perennial problem with trying to retroactively fix a consumer protection issue like this is, is non-compliance and that the fines maybe aren't high enough to bring some of the data brokers that are smaller, maybe operating more in the shadows out and, and voluntarily registering and paying a fee to the state indeed to do so. They'll risk the the fine of maybe slightly more, but not enough to, to really hurt overpaying that registration fee. Well, given that once you register, suddenly your business goes down, takes this big hit. You have to get rid of all these uh, pieces of data. So the fines for noncompliance have to be at least big enough to offset the money you're going to lose when you register. 
Right. I think in several of these state laws, the not, the fine cap is $10,000, which is small potatoes to, to some of these companies. I mean, we're talking about a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry here. But the counterpoint and in, in the, the optimistic view here is that just having registries in some states, particularly absent of federal registry, of course, the research and the enforcement effort probably isn't worth the squeeze, but it, it's still shedding transparency on the industry. It's bringing some of the, the scope of the problem into light for further follow on policies and regulation. And that was the Texas strategy. The article highlighted a, a great organization here in Texas, Texas Appleseed, that helped craft the Texas law. And they were aware of some of these non-compliance issues when, when they drafted it. It's called the Texas Data Privacy and Security Act. And they essentially agreed, you know, something is better than nothing. Sure, there are going to be people who don't comply with the law and enforcement's going to be hard because there's not enough resources to simply track down all of these companies and they rebrand constantly and they're putting people's data back up after they delete it. But shaping an initial policy can help inform the public and inform lawmakers and push toward, you know, a delete-like act in Texas in the future was was the the bottom line of the article. And, you know, I, I don't disagree with that strategy, but it's a shame that it's not more effective. It's a little like the uh, strategy for export controls on chips. Let's put put out a, a rule that sounds good and fails, and then we'll fail forward to something more enforceable and forward again. Uh, so just constantly failing forward. It's the motto of the modern regulatory states. It's great. Same thing with the, the pending executive order on AI, right? Like, let's push toward just educating around these promised security and trust and safety and civil rights yeah. you know, ideals that we have for AI companies. And We'll get there eventually. Does this mean I have to stop making fun of the EU for constantly failing? I'm sorry. I, I can't accept that. All right. Social media liability. Jane, looks to me as though the negligence claims against social media companies are coming along just as we get totally unenamored of a social media and they won all those big victories. They got Section 230 completely twisted out of what it was intended to do and turned it into a massive engine of immunity. But it's not necessarily going to work on some of these negligence claims. And that's what I think this latest case out of California suggests. That is what this particular order and opinion suggests. I'm not sure I'd buy it. So this is a case that combines several claims for basically negligent design. There were something like nine categories of claims. Some of them were related to products liability, which actually the court, the, the judge in this case, thought were not appropriate. So she did demur those. And the basic underlying theory is you're addicting our kids with all your special designs. You're addicting our kids. Yeah. They're losing sleep and they're they're committing suicide. They're and, oh, goodness. And, and so the, the, you, you've got to redesign it so no one wants to use your product. That's the problem. Yes. So they the court did find that that the negligence claims can go forward, that first of all, you know, Section 230, the court thought doesn't apply to how a website is sort of structured to increase addiction. The comparison that the court made was to Lemon, and that's one of the many claim cases brought against Snapchat for creating a speed filter. Mm -hmm. So even on Section 230, I actually think this is wrong or at least debatable because the speed filter, Snapchat itself was really designing even, you know, the idea of putting numbers 
on your screen to tell you how fast you're going. Here, I just can't separate things like, you know, the screen that scrolls forever or the pattern of when to give someone the dopamine burst. I mean, th those are publisher decisions. So I can't, you know, I, I think that Section 230 may still, in this case, we'll see what happens. But I'm even more distraught, though, at this court's First Amendment analysis, where they basically said, yeah, this is sort of combining speech and conduct, but really this is a case about conduct and how the platforms function. That, that's the closest they could get to language that explains why the court is approaching this as not something that is a pure speech case. And I think the problem, though, is exactly the one that you alluded to, Stuart, which is that we have here a theory that is a vice. Mm -hmm. right? And so it, you could take everything in the case as the plaintiffs describe it and substitute it for, you know, substitute alcohol for social media or substitute video games or even, you know, or pornography rather. And you and the case still Comic makes books sense. in the Comic 50s. Books, yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, and also the news, right? The news is designed to light up the back of our brain, the lizard brain that is that induces fear, right? And so I don't think that this theory where where the breach here is maximizing engagement can really stand as, you know, not only in terms of the First Amendment case law, but even just in principle and in, in torts. My work with kids, though, if, you know, protecting kids is different and they do have First Amendment rights, but maybe people who are taking advantage of them have fewer. Well, so I guess that just calls into question, like, what? when are we slipping from merely giving them what they want to taking advantage of them? Yeah. I mean, so under competitive pressure, every social media site is going to go right up to the line, the legal line, wherever that is, they're going to go right up to the line in terms of maximizing engagement. So does that mean we're going to have a series of tort cases where we decide how much engagement is too much and, and over what types? And yeah, you can be engaged with the news and with sort of political causes, but not with body image. You know, this is... Yeah, it's going to be hard. Yeah. And, you know, I say this as someone who I genuinely believe there's a problem here. I don't use social media much. I will be very careful with my daughter. There is a problem here. It's just that we have... I mean, first of all, if we had better solutions for other vices like alcohol, maybe I'd feel a little more comfortable with the government relying on those methods to try to address the situation. But we're talking here about, first of all, a body of social science that is itself somewhat questionable. So yes. I believe there's a problem, but I don't I don't think we're even close to knowing the extent of the problem, the nature of the problem. And, and given the crisis in replication and psychology, I don't think anyone should feel totally comfortable steamrolling this. And then even if we do understand the nature of the problem, looking at the history of how we've dealt with other vices does not, you know, it, it doesn't give me a good feeling about this. Well, that, our, our solution would be uh, no social media for you until you're 18, which I, I don't think is, is likely to work. Yeah. So I have one unusual perspective on this case. And we'll see if you feel differently about it. You talked about the court and the decision. Uh, I know the judge a little, uh, certainly by reputation, because she was for a while a very famous conservative cause celeb. She was deputy solicitor general in the Reagan administration. She signed a brief that Charles Freed wrote that said, hey, you know that uh, Roe v. Wade thing? We, we might want to think about that again. And as a result was pilloried 
And when she was nominated to the Ninth Circuit, everybody said, oh, this this woman, you know, she should be dragged through the streets, not put on the courts. And so she has been stuck here in the um, trial court in California state system since the Reagan administration, notwithstanding having very substantial academic credentials. And now, of course, she's way too old to, for anybody to promote her. She's almost as old as me. And I thought it was interesting. It was a very detailed opinion. I'm not sure I would say it was brilliant, but it was, you know, not what you'd expect from the from a state trial court in California. But anyways, does that change your view about the analysis that she gave us? I mean, maybe not really, because social media is the boogeyman for both sides. Yes, so it's not like, like I get what you're saying, that maybe she's showing that she has kind of complex set of normative commitments or whatnot. But but I don't know. I, I think hatred of social media doesn't tell us much about a person's politics anyways. Yeah. OK, so, Jesse, I, you should get in because I asked you to at least touch on an article by Chini Sharma, who also appears on the podcast who wanted to talk about products liability, not for hurting kids, but for failing to provide cybersecurity in your tech products. And can you give us a very quick overview of what Chinny ended up saying? Absolutely, yes. Our mutual friend, Chinny, co-authored a piece in Lawfare with Benjamin Zapersky that essentially argues the law of products liability is superior as a form of tort liability over negligence when it comes to informing the legal liability portion of the recently released national cyber strategy. And the argument, if I could deign to summarize what is a very well-organized and well-thought-out piece very briefly, is that products liability focuses on secure by design and it focuses on the quality of the product rather than the behavior of the product owner and like a reaction to practices that cause harm like in the negligence scheme so whereas you know negligence is imposing liability on a person for for careless conduct the products liability case would impose liability on a company that sold essentially you know, a defective product from a cybersecurity standpoint and and reorient incentives towards more secure development and design. Okay. And that's actually running right now in Lawfare. So yes. for our listeners who want to know more about it, it is an effort to say, don't be scared. It doesn't mean stri strict liability. It just means good design uh, as opposed to behaving reasonably. And, you know, okay, take a look at it. It is a new way of thinking about the common law and cybersecurity. All right, let's see. Chessie, the other story I wanted to cover with you was the Colorado Supreme Court decision upholding sort of keyword searches. Google, Google has long done these geo-located searches with a kind of elaborate set of steps you have to step through before they'll give you the data, but they will give you data about the people who were in the vicinity of the crime. And if you are persuasive about those people, they'll tell you who they are. Kind of a two-step process. They have something very similar for keyword searches, where if, and this case was a good example, they wanted to know, because there was a fatal fire, arson fire that killed five people, they wanted to know if anybody had searched for that address in the two or three weeks before the fire. And 
Google pushed them through the same thing. Well, we'll give you some anonymized data. And then you look at those the behavior of those anonymized subscribers and then tell us which ones you're actually interested in. And that's what they did. And the Denver Police Department went through all that process. Google coughed up some names and they caught the guy. And the question is, should we suppress this information? And the Colorado Supreme Court came up with what I consider a really bad compromise. Yep. Well, well described. I will say I, when reading this, thought it was interesting kind of with the backdrop of the Google antitrust case that these warrants essentially rely upon the assumption that Google is everyone's default search engine. And it's yeah, yeah, they do. literally do anything without Googling it first. So just an aside on on how this plays into kind of broader issues at play with Google. But yeah, I mean, the the piece in question here was from the folks at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, pretty cutting, agreed that the opinion maybe wasn't as all-encompassing as it could have been, particularly as it relates to what could be a constitutionality issue or problem that the court did not take up in this case, which is that despite, you know, similar to geofence warrants, despite that the request to Google for a very specific, you know, variations on the address that the arson took place and a very limited request two weeks before the commission of the crime, Google had to query its full user database to pull the results that it did and then narrow the police down to the suspect. And these keyword searches and these keyword warrants are typically used in cases where there are no suspects. Whereas if you have a suspect in mind, we read cases all the time where they're like, well, the suspect Googled this, this, and this before. That just required Google to pull one user's information rather than query the whole world of the one billion Google users for the phraseology. So yeah, the the EFF argument is essentially that this opinion is a slippery slope toward misuse of these warrants for vague or controversial terms that maybe aren't as well defined as, say, variations on an address where a crime took place that could implicate innocent people. And, and again, you know, there's a potential, in their view, misapplication of the Fourth Amendment here that suggests that the queries fall in the class of actually protected information from a search and seizure standpoint, and that law enforcement, at the very least, should take steps to limit the scope of these warrants if they are indeed going to be, you know, valid in use in law enforcement investigations. So I am totally out of sympathy with the notion that, oh, you searched a billion records to find these four searches that met your terms. So what? Right. Nobody, nobody's privacy was affected by that. Nobody was harmed, no matter how they define their privacy. Focusing on the billion searches that have no impact strike, strikes me as completely wrong. There's a there is an argument that says there are certain search terms that might sound plausible, but which aren't likely to produce actual evidence. This is not that case. They had no suspects and they ended up with three names. And one of them was the guy who did it. I I think this is great police work and good law. The problem I had with the court is they said, well, we're going to approve this one search and then we're going to write an opinion that says you can never do it again. Because by, I think, a one vote, one justice majority, they said, This probably does violate the requirement for probable cause, but it was done in good faith and therefore we're going to let it stand, which is basically their way of saying we can't take the heat for letting five people die knowing who did it and letting them walk. But from now on, you won't be able to do keyword searches in Colorado. At least that's how I read it. 
I completely agree with you. You, you took the words right out of my mouth as, as a former law enforcement intel manager here in Texas. I think the real issue was the probable cause issue. Yeah. And the EFF, I, it, was, it was remarkably ungenerous to be whining about the fact they won the damn case. They established the precedent that they wanted, and they just could not stop themselves from saying, you didn't let the guy go, even though he's guilty. Oh, we're so upset. I, you know, screw them. <laughs> okay. Speaking of uh, uh, screwing them, the conservatives are planning to screw CISA. They're mad at CISA mainly because of CISA's policing of speech in the run-up to the 2020 election, which was the subject of a Jim Jordan weaponization of government report. And this is, you know, probably the end of the honeymoon for CISA. I don't think Republicans are going to be on CISA's side anytime soon. And there's talk about cutting the budget. This was, I do think they made a mistake, Jesse, uh, by going in and starting to talk about how they were going to police malinformation, which is a polite word for stuff that's true but inconvenient for the people in power, as well as dis and misinformation, and expanding their agenda to cover. If they had stuck with, are the machines that are counting your votes secure? We can tell you authoritatively, yes or no. No one would be objecting to what they did, but they instead went off and decided they were just going to police the internet for uh, bad things that somebody in Russia might have said, or maybe somebody in the United States is repeating stuff that people in Russia said. You know, uh, we've, we've had Chris Krebs on the podcast a lot, and I like him, but this was good for his career, but bad for his agency. Nate, well, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're, yeah, yeah, surely I mean, you don't agree with me. <laughs> not really. I mean, I think, you know, Rand Paul may have gotten elected to the Senate by the people of Kentucky, but that doesn't make him a serious person. It doesn't make him a principled person. And I think you, there are legitimate free speech issues with these efforts by the government and by companies to, to counter misinformation. If we think Rand Paul really cares about that, we're kidding ourselves. Well, he cares about something. I get He relies on misinformation and disinformation to get his bullshit message out be, to huh? his voters. And that's the <laughs> that's what's going on here at the end of the day. And I think, you know, a lot of these criticisms of CISA and, and other government agencies, frankly, uh, you know, I think are are doing two things. One, they're overstating what these agencies are doing in a lot of cases. A lot of this is just throwing stuff over the transom saying, hey, you know, did you see this? Yeah. Take a look at this. And and they're free to do what they want. And they have their own incentives for trying to police this stuff. And that's a reality. And it goes beyond the reasons that Rand Paul is is suggesting. And two, the overstatement. But it's a it's a subsidy for it's a it's a subsidy for censorship. It's saying, we know you're censoring, and that's great. And we think you could use some help. So we'll have a bunch of federal employees get together and send you other stuff you can right, censor. But he, he's fine with people censoring other things, right? He doesn't want you to have to make a cake for, you know, an LGBTQ wedding, right, in Ohio. So I actually, I have no idea where, where he... He's fine with people doing this kind of thing when, when, they, when it aligns with his political viewpoint. And I think the other thing that all of this overstates is the impact that it has on the people who are receiving this stuff. Look, I've I've worked at one of these companies before, and in those cases, I was actually receiving compulsory process that required us to do things. 
And a lot of people at companies feel like that's optional at the end of the day. And they know this stuff isn't required right. of them. And the fact that they receive it and then sometimes act upon it doesn't mean that the government is forcing them to do this or even putting any pressure on them at all. And I think in a lot of cases, and that's not to say every company will feel this way, but I can guarantee you these big companies do not feel compelled to do anything in response to these kinds of requests, whether they're coming from the White House or some GS-12 at CISA. It doesn't matter. And they're doing this independent of those reasons. And I think that, you know, they, we have to call out the fact that they have their own motivations here, number one. And number two, the things they're doing are having an impact on important responsibilities that CISA has, right? They're trying to gouge them with funding. And again, I, I'm, I take issue with what they're doing here, but this is a drop in the bucket of what of the money that CISA is spending on all of its activities. And some of those are actually important. I completely agree with you that CISA is doing some really important work cutting their budget because of what was a side project, but a side project with lots and lots of visibility for the head of the agency. He got fired over it. Yeah. And, and that right. made his career because, you know, being an alumnus of the uh, Trump administration is bad for your career. Having been fired by Trump is good for your career. But again, think about that, though. What did he get fired for? Not for not for. It was a tweet where he said, yeah, the, the election was secure. Right. He didn't get fired for, you know, quashing other people's speech. He got fired for his own free speech. Yeah. And Rand Paul criticized him for doing that and defended Trump for firing him. He is not pro-free speech. He is pro-speech of his own views. And that is where this ends, as far as I'm concerned. Rand Paul is a hypocrite. Okay. Well, it, it, it's going to change the climate for a long time. CISA could get what I would describe yeah. as small ball security bills through every Congress. There were somewhere between three and five bills that mostly just took an existing program and put it into law, but also some valuable information sharing bills and the like. And it was all because nobody was mad at them. That's over. Now there's somebody who will think it's his job in the Senate to get in the way of bills that otherwise would have an easy time getting passed. So it's it's a shame. And I wish that CISA had thought a little more carefully before they got into this business. And they might have, if they had stuck to saying the machines are working, I'm not sure they would have been fired. And uh, it would have been their knitting that they were sticking to. Yeah. One thing I agree with you, but I think one thing to keep in mind is it may just be a delay. He may not win on this stuff in the end. What it's going to require is enough pressure to build on enough of these things that forces um, whether it's the Democrats who are in charge or Republicans who feel like they have to do something to put these things together into a, a larger package yes. and give it enough time on the floor to overcome his objections. But I think it's unfortunate that, it, you know, in the best case scenario, it's going to take a lot of time to get to that yep. point. OK, last story I want to cover. The Supreme Court on Friday took up the jawboning case. That's why I like to call it, because otherwise it's kind of hard to say what it was, but this is the problem is that the name of the case has changed from Missouri versus Biden to Murphy versus uh, Missouri. Can't keep track of it. It's been a cert petition. It's been a stay application, but it's all about the effort by Missouri and I think Louisiana to say what CISA was doing and what other agencies were doing was basically encouraging a censorship. And it got to the point where it was so much encouraging 
that it's really state action. And therefore, the agency should be enjoined from doing that anymore. The Solicitor General went in all guns blazing, say, this cannot stand. And they got a surprising result here, to my mind. They got six justices to say, yeah, we'll grant your stay, notwithstanding that uh, there were no dissents below. We're just going to grant your stay, uh, not let this stand. We're going to grant certiorari. I can't believe they actually had a full set of papers on certiorari. Maybe they did. And there were three dissenters from the decision to issue the stay. And they are Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch, which is what you'd expect. That means that the pro-business conservatives did not think that this was something that they should defend. And maybe one or two of them will defect. But my guess is this signals that the SG has a winning argument here. I've done a cyber tune on the, uh, the story because I thought that the SG was desperate to find an argument that would work. And they, they had to kind of say, oh, the state has no standing here because the state has no First Amendment rights to listen to their citizens or to say anything. So shut up. You don't have a First Amendment case. And then a three pages later, they said, oh, but you can't tell us not to talk to the social media because that interferes with our right to communicate on important issues. And you say, well, didn't you just say there's no First Amendment right? And the answer is, oh, no, we found this right that the courts can't interfere with in the separation of powers. And, and so it's, it's really just a limit on the judiciary to tell the executive branch what it can and can't say. And, you know, those states, uh, they might be protected by federalism, but that's just stupid. And they'd have no separation of powers uh, place to stand. They're making all that law up. And if that's what they have to do to win this case, they're either going to lose or they're going to make a lot of bad laws, the way I read it. So needs to be watched. I think the uh, the state is probably right here. And maybe uh, the initial reaction of some of the conservatives can be ameliorated. But I'm sort of worried that we're going to get bad law out of this case. All right, that's it. Jesse, Jane, Nate, thank you for joining us. For our listeners, leave us feedback, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or a review on one of the uh, aggregators. This has been episode 478 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Tell me what is the worry that requires regulation of ChatGPT? Are we afraid it's going to use the wrong pronouns?